0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: Thanks for coming, and it's my great pleasure today to introduce Zizi Packer, uh, who was born in Chicago and grew up in Georgia and Kentucky. She attended Yale University, Johns Hopkins University, and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Um, In 2003, she published a collection of short stories called Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. Uh, The stories in Drinking Coffee Elsewhere take place in varied locations at Yale, in Baltimore, in Japan. The protagonists range from a 14-year-old named Tia who runs away from her religious aunt to Atlanta and falls in with a smooth-talking hustler and a streetwalker to a boy in his late teens who is forced to go to the Million Man March in Washington D.C. by his father who hopes to sell a set of exotic birds to the marchers. Um, And to a young woman adrift in the alien landscapes of Japan, along with a Croatian model with a mutilated face, her weightlifter, Croatian boyfriend, and assorted others. The New York Times book review said about these stories, I quote, Packer's collection reminds us that no stylistic tour de force or authorial gamesmanship or flights of language can ground a story like a well-realized character. This is the old-time religion of storytelling, although Packer's prose supplies plenty of the edge and energy we expect from contemporary fiction, close quote. And I certainly agree with that. Um, My favorite among these protagonists, though, is Clarice in a story called Every Tongue Shall Confess, who is a cross-eyed nurse at odds with the bureaucracy in her hospital because she feels compelled to bring the word of the the Lord to her patients, whether they want it or not. Um, Clarice at work and, her, and at her church is an acute, sympathetic, and yet clear-eyed portrayal of the narrowing comforts of faith, which gives its believers enormous strength and yet prevents them from seeing things that they might otherwise see. Um, I thought what the Publishers Weekly said about the collection applies particularly to this story. These stories never end neatly or easily. Packer knows how to keep the tone provocative and tense at the closing of each tale, doing justice to the complexity and dignity of the characters and their difficult choices. Um, Zizi was named one of granta 's best young American novelists she 's received the Commonwealth Club Fiction Award, Wallace Stegner and Guggenheim Fellowships, and a Whiting award um, and this is what I gathered before she was working on a novel. Um, And in an interview, she had said that the novel is set in the 19th century after the Civil War. The subject is the Buffalo soldiers who left the South, Louisiana in this case, and traveled to the West. You don't hear much about blacks in the West, and I became really fascinated by them. I thought to justify my interest, I had better write about them. And I was going to end by saying that really the most annoying thing you can ever say to a writer is hurry up and finish already so I can read it. But she just told me she's finished. Yay! And so we look forward to that. May I present ZZ Packer? Hi.
0: Well, I want to thank everyone um, here for coming. you know, I, when people say that there's going to be a library event at a, a university, you know, you just sort of expect, you know, it to be a very cozy affair. But I'm just so happy that so many people came out. And I'm also um, uh, grateful to be asked to be here uh, by Beverly and I thank David and, of course, Vikram and Melanie um, and, of course, the students here. It's, it was always kind of a... A goal of mine to go to Berkeley, but my mother, who's, you know, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, she, she said, oh, no, that's too far. You can't go there. You can't go all the way out to California. Um, but I ended up making my way here uh, anyway, kind of uh, a decade too late. <laughs> so I'm going to read, um, I'll probably read from the story called uh, Brownies. Um, I would have liked to have read uh, a little bit of the novel, but I couldn't find it anywhere except on my computer. So the latest version is, is uh, just still right there on the hard drive, and it would be a little awkward to read to you from uh, my, uh, my little Mac <laughs> brownies. By our second day at Camp Crescendo... The girls in my Brownie Troop had decided to kick the asses of each and every girl in Brownie Troop 909. Troop 909 was doomed from the first day of camp. There were these white girls, their complexions like a blend of strawberry and vanilla ice cream. They turtled out of their bus in pairs, their rolled-up sleeping bags chromatized with Disney characters. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Mickey Mouse, or the generic ones that cheap parents bought. Washed-out rainbows, unicorns, curly eyelashed frogs, some clutched their igloo coolers, and still others held onto their stuffed toys like pacifiers, looking all around them like tourists determined to be dazzled. Our troop was wending its way past their bus, past the ranger station, past the colorful trail guide, drawn like a treasure map, locked behind glass. "Man, did you smell them?" Arnetta said giving the girls a slow once-over. They smell like chihuahuas, wet chihuahuas. Their troop was still at the entrance, and though we had passed them by yards, Arnetta raised her nose in the air and grimaced. Arnetta said this from the very rear of the line, far away from Miss Margolin, who always strung our troop behind her like a brood of obedient ducklings. Miss Margolin had even looked like a mother duck. She had hair cropped close to a small ball of a head, almost no neck, and huge, miraculous breast. She wore enormous belts that looked like the kind that weightlifters wore, except hers would be cheap metallic gold, or rabbit fur, or covered with gigantic fake sunflowers. And often, these belts would become nature lessons in and of themselves. See, Ms. Margolin once said to us, pointing at a belt, this one's made entirely from the feathers of baby pigeons. The belt, layered with feathers, was uncanny enough, but I was more disturbed by the, fact, by the realization that I'd never actually seen a baby pigeon, and so I searched weeks for one, in vain, scampering after pigeons whenever I was downtown with my father. But nature lessons were not Ms. Margolin's top priority. She saw the position of troop leader as an evangelical post, Back at the AME church where our Brownie meetings were held, Ms. Margolin was especially fond of imparting religious aphorisms and mnemonics by means, religious aphorisms by means of mnemonics, so that Satan, S-A-T-A-N, was the serpent always tempting and noisome, and she referred to the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, as basic instructions before leaving earth. Arnetta always made a point of listening to Ms. Margolin's religious talk and giving her what she wanted to hear. And because of this, Arnetta could have blared through a megaphone that the white girls of Troop 909 were wet chihuahuas without so much as a blink from Ms. Margolin. Once, Arnetta killed the Troop goldfish by feeding it a French fry covered in ketchup. And when Ms. Margolin demanded that she explain what had happened, Arnetta claimed the goldfish had been eyeing her meal for hours, and the fish had leapt up and snatched the whole golden fry from her fingertips. Serious chihuahua, Octavia added. And though neither Arnetta nor Octavia could spell chihuahua and had never even seen a chihuahua, trisyllabic words had gained a sort of exoticism within our fourth-grade set at Woodrow Wilson Elementary. Arnetta and Octavia would flip through the dictionary, determined to work the vulgar-sounding ones like Djibouti and Asinine, into conversation. (laughs) Caucasian chihuahuas, Arnetta said. That did it. The girls in my troop turned elastic. Dreama and Elise doubled up on one another like inextricably entwined kites. Octavia slapped her belly, and Janice jumped up straight in the air as if to slam dunk her own head. They couldn't stop laughing. No one had laughed so hard since a boy named Martez had stuck a pencil in the electric socket and spent the whole day with a strange grin on his face. (laughs) Girls, 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 said our parent helper, Mrs. Hetty. Mrs. Hetty was Octavia's mother, and she wagged her index finger perfunctorily like a windshield wiper. Stop it now. Be good. She said this loud enough to be heard but lazily and bereft of any feeling or indication she meant to be obeyed, as though she could say these same words at the exact same pitch if a button somewhere on her were pressed. But the rest of the girls didn't stop. They only laughed louder. It was the word Caucasian that it got them all going. One day at school, about a month before the brownie camping trip, Arnetta turned to a boy wearing impossibly high-ankled floodwater jeans and said, "'What are you, Caucasian?' And the word took off from there. If you ate too fast, you ate like a Caucasian. If you ate too slow, you ate like a Caucasian. The biggest feat anyone at Woodrow Wilson could do was jump off in a swing in air And if you fell as I had, instead of landing on your feet, knees bent, Olympic gymnast style, Arnetta and Octavia were prepared to comment. They'd look at each other. With the silence of passengers who narrowly escaped an accident and nod their heads, whispering with solemn horror, Caucasian. (laughs) Even the only white kid in our school, Dennis, got in on the Caucasian act. That time when Martez stuck a pencil in the electric socket, Dennis had pointed and yelled, That was so Caucasian. When you lived in the south suburbs of Atlanta, it was easy to forget about whites. Whites were like those baby pigeons, real and existing, but rarely seen or thought about. Everyone had gone to riches to go clothes shopping. Everyone had seen white girls and their mothers cuckooing over dresses. Everyone had gone to the downtown library and seen white businessmen swish by importantly, their wrists flexed in front of them to check the time as if they would change from Clark Kent to Superman in any second. But those images were as fluting as cards shuffled in a deck, Whereas the ten white girls behind us, Arnetta would later call them invaders, were instantly real and memorable, some of them with long shampoo commercial hair straight as spaghetti from the box. The only black girl most of us has ever seen with hair that long was Octavia, whose hair hung but, past her butt like a Hawaiian hula dancer's. The sight of Octavia's mane prompted other girls to listen to her reverentially, as though whatever she had to say would somehow activate their own hair follicles. For example, when on the first day of camp, Octavia made as if to speak, and everyone fell silent. Nobody, Octavia said, calls us niggers. At the end of that first day... When half of our troop made their way back to the camp cabin after tag team restroom visits, Arnetta said she'd heard one of the Troop 909 girls call Daphne a nigger. The other half of the girls and I were helping Miss Margolin clean up the pots and pans from the campfire ravioli dinner. When we made our way to the restrooms to wash up and brush our teeth, we met up with Arnetta midway. Man, I completely heard the girl, Arnetta said. Right, Daphne? Daphne hardly ever spoke, but when she did, her voice was petite and tinkly, the voice one might expect from a shiny new earring. She written a poem once for Langston Hughes' day, a poem brimming with all the teacher-winning ingredients, trees and oceans, sunsets and moons, but what cinched the poem for the grown-ups snatching the wind from Octavia's musical ode to Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were Daphne's last lines, you are my father, the veteran. When you cry in the dark, it rains and rains and rains in my heart. All the kids clapped, though none of them understood the poem. And I'd read encyclopedias the way others read comics, and I didn't get it. But those last lines pricked me. They were so eerie. And as my father and I ate cereal, I'd whisper over my Fruit Loops like a mantra. You are my father, the veteran. You are my father, the veteran, the veteran. Until my father... Who was a Shakespearean actor and not a veteran, marched me up to my teacher one morning and said, Can you tell me what the hell's wrong with this kid? (laughs) Daphne had always worn clean, though faded, jumpers and dresses when chick jeans were in fashion. But when she went up to receive her prize journal, pages trimmed in gold, she wore a new dress with a velveteen bodice and a taffeta skirt as wide as an umbrella. I thought Daphne and I might become friends, but I think she grew spooked by me whispering those lines to her, begging her to tell me what they meant. And I soon understood that two quiet people like us were better off quiet alone. Daphne, didn't you hear them call you a nigger? Arnetta asked. We'd seen the girls, but from afar, never within their orbit enough to see whether their faces, were the way all white girls appear to us on TV, ponytailed and full of energy, "'bubbling over with love and money. "'All we could see was that some of them rapidly fanned their faces with their hands "'though the heat of the day had long passed. "'A few seemed to be lolling their heads "'in slow circles, half-purposefully, "'as if exercising the muscles in their necks, "'looking a little bit like Stevie Wonder. "'We can't let them get away with that,' Arnetta said, "'and then dropped her voice to a laryngitic whisper. "'We can't let them get away with calling us niggers. "'I say we teach them a lesson.' She sat down cross-legged on a sleeping bag, and in bitter Buddha, her eyes glimmering acrylic black. And we can't go tell Miss Margolin either. Miss Margolin will say something about doing unto others and the path of righteousness and all of that. Then Arnetta said, forget that oh. Nobody said anything for a while. Usually people were quiet after Arnetta spoke. Her tone had an upholstered confidence that was somehow both regal and vulgar at once. It would demand it a few moments of silence in its wake, like the ringing of a church bell or the playing of taps. Sometimes Octavia would ditto or dissent whatever Arnetta had to say, and this was a signal that others could speak. But this time, Octavia just swirled a long cord of hair into pretzel shapes. Everyone looked from Arnetta to Daphne. It was, after all, Daphne, who had supposedly been called the name. But Daphne sat on the bare cabin floor, flipping through the pages of the Girl Scout handbook. Her eyebrows arched in mock wonder. Janice was the one to break the silence. She clapped her hands to broach her idea of a plan. Listen, she said, they're going to be sleeping. Then we're going to sneak into their cabins. Then we're going to put daddy-long leads in their sleeping bags. And then they'll wake up. And that's when we're going to beat them up as flat as frying pans. She jammed her fist into the palm of her hand that made a sizzling sound. Janice's country accent was laughable, her looks homely, her jumpy acrobatics embarrassing to behold. Arnetta and Octavia volleyed amused, arrogant smiles whenever Janice opened her mouth. But Janice never caught the hint, spoke whenever she wanted, fluttered around Arnetta and Octavia, futilely offering her opinions to their departing backs. Whenever Arnetta and Octavia shooed her away, Janice loitered until the two would finally sigh and ask, What is it, Miss Caucasoid? What do you want? Shut up, Janice, Octavia said, and let her loop of hair fall to her waist as though just the sound of Janice's voice had ruined the fun of her hair twisting. All right, Arnetta said, standing up. We're going to have a secret meeting and talk about what we're going to do. Snot, you're not going to be a bitch and tell Miss Margolin, are you? Now, I've been called snot ever since the first grade when I'd sneezed in class and two long ropes of mucus had splattered a nearby girl. Hey, I said, maybe you didn't hear them right. I mean, are you going to tell on us or not? was all Arnetta wanted to know. And by the time the question was asked, the rest of our brownie troop looked to me as though they'd already decided their course of action. Camp Crescendo used to double as a high school band and field hockey camp until an arcing field hockey ball landed on the clasp of a girl's metal barrette, knifing a skull nerve and paralyzing the right side of her body. The camp closed down for a few years, and the girl's teammates built a memorial, filling the spot on which the girl fell with hockey balls, in which they painted all in nail polish, get-well tidings, flowers, and hearts. The balls were still stacked there like a shrine of ostrich eggs embedded in the ground. On the second day of camp, Troop 909 was dancing awkwardly around the mound of hockey balls, their limbs jangling awkwardly, their cries like the constant summer squeal of an amusement park. There was a stream that bordered the field hockey lawn, and the girls from my troop settled next to it, scarfing down the last last of lunch. Sandwiches made from salami and slices of tomato that had gotten waterlogged from the melting ice in the cooler. From the stream bank, Arnetta eyed the Troop 909 girls, scrutinizing their movements as if to glean inspiration for battle. Man, Arnetta said, we could bum rush them right now if that damn lady would leave. The Troop 909 leader was a white woman with a severe pageboy hairdo of an ancient Egyptian. She lay on a picnic blanket, sphinx-like, eating a banana, sometimes holding it out in front of her like a microphone. Beside her sat a girl slowly flapping one hand like a bird with a broken wing. Occasionally, the leader would call out the names of girls who'd attempted leapfrogs and flips, or of girls who yelled too loudly and strayed too far from the circle. I'm just glad Miss Margolin's not following us here, Octavia said. At least we don't have to worry about her. Miss Margolin... Octavia assured us, was having her afternoon devotional shrouded in a mosquito netting in a clearing that she'd found. I handled them, Arnetta said. I told her that we were going to go gather some leaves. Gather leaves, Octavia said, nodding respectfully. That's a good one, especially since they're so mad about, mad crazy about this camping thing. I mean, I don't even know what's called camping. All we ever do with nature is find some twigs and say something like, wow, this fell from a tree. After a while, Elise began humming the tune to Karma Chameleon, all the girls joining in, their hums light and facile. Janice also began to hum against everyone else, the high-octane opening chords of Beat It. I love me some Michael Jackson, Janice said when she finished humming, smacking her lips as though Michael Jackson were a favorite meal, and I will marry Michael Jackson. Sala. Before everything. <laughs> Before anyone had the chance to impress upon Janice the impossibility of this, Arnetta suddenly rose and made a sun visor of her hand and watched Troop 909 leave the field hockey lawn. Damn it, she said, we've got to get them alone. I said, they're not ever going to be alone. All the girls, of course, then looked at me because I usually kept quiet. If I spoke even a word, I could count on someone calling me snot. And everyone seemed to think that we could beat up these girls, but no one had entertained the thought that they might actually fight back. I said, the only time they're going to be unsupervised is in the bathroom. Oh, shut up, snot, Octavia said. But Arnetta slowly nodded her head. That's right, the bathroom. According to Octavia's watch, it took us five minutes to hike to the restrooms, which were midway between our cabin and Troop 909's. Inside, the mirrors above the sinks returned only the vaguest of reflections, as though someone had taken a scouring pad to the surfaces to obscure the shine. Pine needles, leaves, and dirty, flattened wads of chewing gum covered the floor like a mosaic. Wow, look at this mess, Elise said. You can say that again, Dreama said. But Arnetta leaned against the door jamb of the restroom stall. This is where they'll be again, she said. Just seeing the place, just having a plan seemed to satisfy her We'll go in, talk to them, you know, how you doing, how long you gonna be here, that sort of thing And then Octavia and I are gonna tell them what happens when any one of them calls us a nigger Janice interrupted I'm gonna say something too, she said Arnetta considered this Sure, she said, of course, whatever you want Janice pointed her finger like a gun at Octavia and rehearsed the line she thought up We're gonna teach you a lesson, that's what I'm gonna say She narrowed her eyes like a TV mobster. We're going to teach you little girls a lesson. With the back of her hand, Octavia brushed Janice's finger away. Janice, you couldn't teach me to shit in a toilet. But, I said, what if they say we didn't say that? What if they say we didn't call anyone an N-I-G-G-E-R? Snot, Arnetta said, then sighed. Don't think, just fight, if you even know how. Everyone laughed except Daphne. Arnetta gently laid her hand on Daphne's shoulder. Daphne, you don't have to fight. We're doing this for you. Daphne walked to the counter, took a clean paper towel, and carefully unfolded it like a map. With it, she began to pick up the trash all around. Everyone watched. Come on, Arnetta said to everyone. Let's go. Are you coming, Daphne? Daphne, she said, are you coming? We all looked back at Daphne, the thin, bending girl, the thin of her back hunched like the back of a custodian sweeping the stage. I guess she's not coming, Arnetta said. We left her and headed back to the cabin, over the pine needles and leaves taking the path full of shade. What about our secret meeting, Elise asked. Arnetta enunciated her words in a way that defied contradiction. We just had it. Then it was nearing our bedtime, and the sun had not yet set. Hey, your mama's coming, Arnetta said to Octavia when she saw Miss Hetty walk toward the cabin, sniffling. When Octavia's mother wasn't giving bored parochial orders, she sniffled continuously, mourning an imminent divorce from her husband. She might begin a sentence with something like, I don't know what Robert's going to do when Octavia and I are gone. Who's going to buy him his cigarettes? And Octavia would hotly whisper, Mama in a way that meant, please don't talk about our problems in front of everyone else. Please just shut up. But when Miss Hetty began talking about her husband, thinking about her husband, seeing clouds shaped like the head of her husband, she couldn't be quiet, and no one could dislodge her from the comfort of her own woe. Only one thing could perk her up, brownie songs. If the girls were quiet and Miss Hetty was in her dopey, sorrowful mood. She would say, y'all know I like those songs, girls. Why don't you sing one? And everyone would groan except me and Daphne. Come on, everybody, Octavia said drearily. You know she likes the Brownie song best. So we sang, loud enough to reach Mrs. Hetty. I've got something in my pocket It belongs across my face And I keep it very close at hand In the most convenient place I'm sure you couldn't guess it If you guessed for a long, long while So I'll take it out and put it on It's a great big brownie smile The Brownie song was supposed to be sung cheerfully as though we were elves in a workshop singing as we merrily cobbled shoes. But everyone except me hated the song so much they sang it like a maudlin record played on the most sluggish of RPMs. That was good, Miss Hetty said, closing the cabin door behind her. Wasn't that nice, Linda? Praise God, Miss Margolin said. Sing another one, Miss Hetty said. She said it with a sort of joyful aggression. God, Mama, just get over it, Octavia whispered, in a voice meant only for Arnetta, but Miss Hetty heard it and started to leave the cabin. Don't go, Arnetta said. She ran after Miss Hetty and held her by the arm. We haven't finished singing. Arnetta nudged us with a single look. Let's sing the Friends song from Mrs. Hetty. And although I liked some of the songs, I hated this one. Make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver and the other gold. But if most of the girls, my troop could be any type of metal, they'd be bunched up wads of tinfoil or rusty iron nails you had to get tetanus shots for. <laughs> no, 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 Miss Margolin said before anyone could start in on the Friends song, an uplifting song, something to lift her up and take her mind off all these earthly burdens. Arnetta and Octavia rolled their eyes. Everyone knew what song Miss Margolin was talking about, and no one, no one wanted to sing it. Please no, a voice called out, not the donut song. Please not the donut song, Octavia pleaded. Dreama said, I'll brush my teeth two times if I don't have to sing the donut song. Sing it, Miss Margolin demanded. So we sang. Life without Jesus is like a donut, like a donut, like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut, there's a hole in the middle of my soul. There were other verses involving other pastries, but we stopped after the first one and cast glances toward Miss Margolin to see if we could get a reprieve. Miss Margolin's eyes fluttered blissfully. She was half asleep. Aw, Miss Hetty said, as though giant Miss Margolin were a cute baby. Miss Margolin's had a long day. Yes, indeed, Miss Margolin said. If you don't mind, I might just go to the lodge where the beds are. I haven't been the same since the operation. I hadn't heard of this operation or when it had occurred since Miss Margolin had never missed the once-a-week brownie meetings, but I could see from Daphne's face that she was concerned, and I could see that the other girls had decided that Miss Margolin's operation must have happened long ago in some remote time unconnected to our own. So we put on sad faces. We'd all been taught that adulthood was full of sorrow and pain, taxes and bills, dread at work, dealings with white people, sickness and death. I tried to do what the others did. I tried to look silent. Go right ahead, Linda, Miss Hetty said. I'll watch the girls. Miss Hetty seemed to forget about divorce for a moment. She looked at us with dewy eyes as if we were mysterious, furry creatures. Meanwhile, Miss Margolin walked through the maze of sleeping bags until she found her own. She gathered a neat stack of clothes and pajamas slowly, as though doing so was almost painful. All right, Miss Margolin said, addressing us from the threshold of the cabin, be in bed by 9. Come on everybody, Arnetta said after Miss Margolin left, time for us to wash up. Everyone watched Miss Hetty closely, wondering if in Miss Margolin's absence if she would insist on coming with us since it was nighttime and thus making a fight with troop 909 nearly impossible. Troop 909 would soon be in the bathroom washing their faces, brushing their teeth, completely unsuspecting of our ambush. We won't be long, Arnetta said. We're old enough to go to the restrooms by ourselves. Miss Hetty pursed her lips at this dilemma. Well, I guess you brownies are almost Girl Scouts, right? Right, everyone said. Just one more badge, Dreama said. And Octavia droned about a million more cookies to sell. So we made our way. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of, I have to take out certain parts. So there's some parts I'm taking out. So we made our way through the darkness by flashlight. The tree branches that had shaded us just hours earlier along the same path now looked like arms sprouting sprouting menacing hands. The stars sprinkled the sky like spilled salt. They seemed fastened to the darkness, high up, their places fixed and definite as we stirred beneath them. Some of the girls, like me, were quiet because we were afraid of the dark, and others were talking like crazy for the same reason. Wow, Dreama said, looking up. Where are all the stars out here? I never see stars back on Oneida Street. It's a camping trip, that's why, Octavia said. You're supposed to see stars on camping trips. Janice said, this place smells like my mother's air freshener. And Octavia rolled her eyes. These woods are pine, she said. Your mother probably uses pine air freshener. And then Janice mouthed an exaggerated oh as though she now understood one of the world's great mysteries. No one talked about fighting. Everyone was afraid enough just looking through the infinite deep, just walking through the infinite deep of the woods. Even though I didn't want to fight and was afraid to fight, I felt that I was part of the rest of the troop, like I was defending something. We trudged against the slight incline of the path, Arnetta leading the way. You know, I said, their leader's going to be there. Or, you know, they might not even be there right now. I mean, it's dark already. Last night, at the same time, the sun was still in the sky. I'm sure they're probably finished by now. Arnetta acted as if she hadn't heard me. I followed her gaze with my flashlight. And that's when I saw the squares of light in the darkness. The bathroom was just ahead. But the girls were there. We could hear them before we could see them. You know... Arnetta said, Octavia and I are going to go in first so they'll just think there's the two of of us then wait till I say, we're going to teach you a lesson Arnetta said, then bust in, that'll surprise them but that's what I was supposed to say, Janice said Arnetta ignored her then went in, Octavia next to her and Janice followed, the rest of us waited outside they were in there for what seemed like whole minutes but something was wrong Arnetta hadn't given the signal yet. I was with the girls outside when I heard one of the Troop 909 girls say, no, that did not happen. That was to be expected, that they'd deny the whole thing. But what I hadn't expected was the voice in which the denial was said. The girl sounded as though her tongue were caught in her mouth. That's a bad word, the girl said, and we don't say bad words. Let's go in, Elise said. No, Dreama said. What if we get beat up? Snot, Elise said, turning to me, her flashlight blinding. It was the first time anyone had asked my opinion, though I knew they were doing it just because they were afraid. Finally, I said, I say we go inside just to see what's going on. But Arnetta didn't give us a signal, Dreama said. She's supposed to say, we're going to teach you a lesson, and I didn't hear her say that. Come on, I said, let's just go in. So we went inside. There we found the white girls, about five of them, huddled up next to one big girl. I instantly knew the big girl was the owner of the voice we'd heard. Onetta and Octavia inched towards us as soon as we entered. I think, Octavia said, whispering to Elise, they're retarded. We are not retarded, the big girl said. <laughs> Though it was obvious that she was and that they all were. The girls around her began to whimper. They're just pretending, Arnetta said. Octavia turned, to, Octavia turned to Arnetta. Arnetta, let's just leave. And then suddenly Janice came out of a stall, happy and relieved, and remembered her line, pointed to the big girl and said, we're gonna teach you a lesson. Shut up, Janice, Octavia said. Octavia turned to the big girl and said loudly, slowly, as if they were all deaf, We're going to leave now. It was nice meeting you, okay? You don't have to tell anyone that we were in here, okay? Why not? Said the big girl like a taunt. When she spoke, her lips did not meet. Her mouth did not close. Her tongue grazed the roof of her mouth like a little pink fish. You'll get in trouble. I know. I know. Arnetta got back her old cunning. If you said anything, then you'd be a tattletale, she said. The big girl looked sad for a moment and then perked up quickly and a flash of genius crossed her face. I like tattletale. It's all right, girls. It's going to be all right, the Troop 909 leader said. All of Troop 909, it seemed, had burst into tears. It was as though someone had instructed them to all cry at once. The troop leader had girls under her arm, and the rest of them crowded about her. It reminded me of a hog I'd seen on a field trip where all the little hogs gathered around their mother at feeding time, latching on to her teats. The 909 troop leader had come into the bathroom shortly after the big girl had threatened to tell. Then the ranger came. Then, once the ranger had radioed the station, Miss Margolin arrived with Daphne in tow. The ranger had left the restroom area, but everyone else was huddled just outside, swatting mosquitoes. Oh, they will apologize, Ms. Margolin said to the Troop 909 leader. But she said it so angrily, I knew she was speaking more to us than to the other troop leader. When their parents find out, every one of them will be on punishment. It's all right, it's all right, the Troop 909 leader reassured Miss Margolin. Her voice lilted in the same way it had when addressing the girls. She smiled the whole time she talked. She was like one of those TV cooking show women who talk and dice onions and smile all at the same time. See, it could have happened. I'm not calling your girl's fibbers or anything. She she shook her head ferociously from side to side, her Egyptian-style page boy flapping against her cheeks like heavy drapes. It could have happened. See, the girls are not retarded. They're delayed learners. And she said this in a syrupy instructional voice as though our troop might be delayed learners as well. We're from the Decatur Children's Academy, and many of them just have special needs. Now we won't be able to go to the bathroom by ourselves, the big girl said. Yes, you will, the troop leader said, but we'll wait till we get back to Decatur. I don't want to wait, the girl said. I want my independence badge. The girls and my troop were entirely speechless. Arnetta looked stoic, as though she was soon to be tortured, but determined not to appear weak, Miss Margolin pursed her lips solemnly and said, Bless them, Lord, bless them. In contrast, the Troop 909 leader was full of words and energy. Some of the girls are echolalic. And then she happily presented one of the girls hanging on to her, but the girl widened her eyes in horror and violently withdrew herself from the center of attention as though sensing she was being sacrificed for the village sins. Echolalic, the troop leader continued. That means they'll say whatever they hear, like an echo. And that's where the word comes from. It comes from echo. I mean, not all of them have the most progressive of parents. So if they heard a bad word, they might have repeated it. But I guarantee it would not have been intentional. Arnetta spoke. I saw her say the word. I heard her. She pointed to a small girl, smaller than any of us, wearing an oversized t shirt, the red Eat Bertha's Muscles. The troop leader shook her head and smiled. That's impossible. I mean, she doesn't speak. I mean, she can, but she doesn't. Arnetta said, no, I think it was the other girl. That's right. It was her. And the girl Arnetta pointed to grinned as though she had been paid a compliment. She was the only one from either troop actually wearing a full uniform, the mocha-colored A-line shift, the orange ascot, the sash covered in badges. They're all the same one, the triad one. She took a few steps towards Arnetta and made a grand sweeping gesture toward the sash. See, she said, full of self-importance, I'm a brownie. I had a hard time imagining this girl calling anyone a bad name. She looked perpetually delighted as though she could have cuddled up with a grizzly if someone had let her. On the fourth morning, we boarded the bus to go home. The previous day had been spent Building miniature churches from popsicle sticks. We barely left the cabin. Miss Margolin and Miss Hetty guarded us so closely, almost no one talked for the entire day. Even on the day of departure from Camp Crescendo, all was serious and silent. The bus ride had begun quietly enough. Arnetta had to sit next to Miss Margolin. Octavia had to sit beside her mother. I sat beside Daphne, who gave me her prize journal without a word of explanation. Don't you want it, I said. She shook her head no. It was empty. Then Miss Hetty began to weep. Octavia, Miss Hetty said to her daughter without looking at her. I'm going to sit with Miss Margolin, all right. Arnetta exchanged seats with Miss Hetty. With the two women up front, Elise felt it safe to speak. Hey, she said, and then she set her face into a placid, vacant stare, trying to imitate that of a 909 girl. Emboldened, Arnetta made a gesture of mock pride towards an imaginary sash, the way the girl in full uniform had done. Then they all made a game of it, trying to do the most exaggerated imitations of Troop 909 girls, all without speaking, all without laughing loud enough to catch Miss Hetty's and Miss Margolin's attention. Daphne looked down at her shoes, white with sneaker polish. I opened the journal she'd given me. I looked out the window trying to decide what to write, searching for lines, but nothing could compare with what Daphne had written, my father the veteran, my father the veteran, my favorite line of all time. I gave up trying to write. By then, it seemed that the rest of the troop had given up making fun of the girls in troop 909. They were now quietly gossiping about who had passed notes to whom in school. For a moment, the gossiping fell off And all I heard was the hum of the bus as we sped down the road and the muffled sounds of Miss Hetty and Miss Margolin talking about serious things. You know, Octavia whispered, why did we have to be stuck at a camp with retarded girls? You know what I mean? You know why, Arnetta said. My mama and I were in this in this mall in Buckhead, and this white lady just kept looking at us. I mean, like we were foreign or something. What did the woman say, Elise asked. Nothing, Arnetta said. She didn't say anything. A few girls quietly nodded their heads. There was this one time, I said, when my father and I, we were in this small and, oh, shut up, snot, Octavia said. I stared at Octavia, then rolled my eyes from her to the window. As I watched the trees blur, I wanted nothing more than to be through with it all. The bus ride, the troop, school, all of it. But we were going home, and I'd see the same girls in school the next day. We were on a bus, and there was nowhere else to go. "'Go on, Laurel,' Daphne said to me. "'It seemed like the first time she'd spoken the whole trip, "'and she'd actually used my real name. "'I turned to her and smiled weakly, "'hoping she'd remember when I tried to be her friend, "'thinking that maybe her gift of the journal "'was an invitation of friendship. "'But she didn't smile back. "'All she said was, "'What happened?' I studied the girls, waiting for Octavia to tell me to shut up again before I even had a chance to utter another word. But everyone was so amazed that Daphne had spoke that they went ahead and let me speak. I gathered my voice. Well, I said, my father and I were in this mall, but I was, doing, I was the one doing the staring. I stopped and glanced from face to face. There were these white people dressed like Puritans or something, but they weren't Puritans. They were Mennonites. They're these people who, if you ask them to do you a favor, like paint your porch or something, they have to do it. It's in their rules. That sucks, Dreama said. Come on, Arnetta said, you're lying. I am not, I said. How do you know that's not just some story someone made up, Elise said. And then said, I mean, who's going to do whatever you ask? It's not made up, I said. I know because when I... Was looking at them, my father said, see those people? If you ask them to do something, they'll do it. Anything you want. No one would call anyone's father a liar. Then they'd have to fight the person. But Drema parsed her words carefully. How does your father know it's not just some story, huh? Because, I said, he went up to the man and asked him would he paint our porch. And the man said, yes, it's in their religion. Man, I'm glad I'm a Baptist, Elise said. So did the guy do it, Dreamer asked. Yeah, I said, his whole family was with him. My dad drove him to our house. They all painted our porch. The woman and the girl were in these bonnets and these long skirts and buttons up to their necks. And the guy wore this weird hat and these huge suspenders. Why, Arnetta asked, as if she didn't believe a single word, would someone pick a porch? I mean, if they'll do anything, why not make them pick the whole house? Why not ask for a hundred bucks? I thought about it and then remembered the words my father had said about them painting our porch, though it never seemed to th- though I never seemed to think about his words right after he'd said them. He said, I began, only understanding then the words as they uncalled from my mouth. It was the only time he'd have a white man on his knees doing something for a black man for free. Now I understood what he meant and why he did it, though I didn't necessarily like it. When you've been made to feel bad for so long, you can sometimes jump at the chance to do it to others. I remember the Mennonites bending the way Daphne had bent when she was cleaning the restroom. I remember the dark blue of their bonnets, the black of their shoes. They painted the porch as though scrubbing a floor. I was already trembling before Daphne asked quietly, Did he thank them? I looked out the window. I could not tell which were the thoughts and which were the trees. No, I said, and I suddenly knew there was something mean in the world that I couldn't stop. Arnetta laughed. If I asked them to take off their long skirts and bonnets and put on some jeans, would they do it? And Daphne's voice, quiet, steady, maybe they would, just to be nice. Thank you. Um, I'll entertain any questions if you have any. Um, the new book is about the Buffalo Soldiers, and um, did I just turn this off? Okay, there it is. Um, and uh, it took several years of research. I don't know how many people know about the Buffalo Soldiers, but they're uh, African-American uh, cavalry and infantry who, um, following the Civil War, were part of the regular Army. And uh, they weren't sort of given a lot of the, credit that they, some of the credit that they deserve. I mean, they pretty much, you know, cleared, you know, Tons of the West, and worked on the railroads, and they, you know, did escorted mail and all this stuff, and and they actually ended up fighting a lot of the Native Americans who sort of revered their fighting skills, um, and they, you know, got called, you know, partly the Buffalo Soldiers because of that, and partly because of the the Buffalo themselves, and and this is sort of a long story, but. Um, but I just felt as though it wasn't dealt with enough. I mean, and, you know, gradually some books, some history books came out about them, and now they're sort of Buffalo Soldier reenactors and all this kind of stuff. But um, at the time, I mean, in terms of fiction, I didn't feel as though it was, it was treated very well, and I became sort of so in love with their story. And it's, it's um, you know, there was this woman who was actually a Buffalo Soldier, and she sort of made her way in my book. And first she was going to be a sort of walk-in character, and then finally she ended up being, you know, one of the three major characters. And she disguised herself as a man, And, you know, it wasn't found out until years and years later that she had actually uh, fought with the men and did, uh, you know, just as good of a job as anyone else. Um, And uh, there's a white colonel, because at the time they didn't allow for black officers, um, and that was uh, that shameful condition. Later on got addressed much too late, but the white colonel uh, took the position and Custer had actually declined the position um, because pretty much he was racist and he didn't want to uh, serve with them. And, you know, later the battle of Little Big harm kind of met his end. Um, but uh, it, you know, it just, there were so many sort of interstices. I mean, this, this sort of intersection between, you know, um, the black people who were protecting a lot of the white townspeople and the townspeople who were upset that they were you know, there were black people who were in uniforms and, and guns sort of, you know, you know, um, out and about. And then the Native Americans themselves, I mean, the Apaches who were such an incredibly sort of techno- technologically superior warrior culture that came up eventually with this, you know, somewhat, you know, pretty much sort of genocidal way that the government had of trying to put them onto reservations. And then later on, the uh, African American soldiers ended up actually instead of just fighting, the Native Americans ended up actually helping them and protecting them from all sorts of uh, interlopers and people who were trying to get on the lands of Indian Territory in Oklahoma and these other places. And so when can we expect that? Um, I wish I knew. It's, It's going into our mutual agent and a matter of days so yes
1: do you think that the current economic crisis in our country is going through which is a major event that this country probably is going to have an effect on your stories
0: Um, you know, I think what happens is on the one hand, writers can sort of tend to write ahead of some trends. I mean, but I think that tends to be more politically than economically. And so, um, I think in the, eventually we'll, we'll, you know, have stories of this kind of recession and if it ever becomes a depression, you know, uh, trickling in, but you know, some, you know, Anytime there's any kind of event or major event in sort of the American history or permeates American culture, I mean, you have people who've written about it way before, I mean, obviously, in terms of the the Depression, and then people who come a little bit after it. But I can't help but think that it will somehow make its way into a lot of stories. Yes? Your book
1: has, excuse me, a lot of very complex stories. Thanks. I'm wondering which of them would you say is closest to
0: um, it's always hard to say that. I mean, I. It, it, sometimes people would sort of think, say, "Oh well," in the story I just read in Brownies, they would say, um, "I'm trying to remember if I said the title before I read." Hopefully, <laughs> um, uh, they'll they'll think, "Oh well, you were in Atlanta and you were part of a Girl Scout troop, and did this happen to you?" And and um, even though there's, you know usually every story is based on just a little tiny kernel of some experience or some way in which um, something I've been wanting to get at. Um, I wouldn't say that Snot slash Laurel is sort of like me, although she probably shares the most of my, you know, sort of um, if you call it biography, that sounds odd. But... um, and even someone like Dina and Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, who also went to the same college that I went to and that kind of thing. But the the character, and I won't say that he is nearest to my heart, but, but I sometimes feel closest emotionally to is maybe Spurgeon, who people feel is, um, and Spurgeon is probably the only, he's the only male narrator in the um, collection, not necessarily the only male character. Um, and people are often, you know, you know, sort of puzzled by that. But I don't necessarily think the person has to be of the same gender or even the same kind of identity for you to be able to understand their journey. And he's someone who's kind of a, you know, this debate champion and, and, you know, this sort of smart kid, but in a period where I grew up where you know if you were smart and black then it was sort of this weird thing I mean you know would some black people talk to you would, how the, the teachers you know some white some black how do they address you and it's, it's just sort of a um, sort of his not even just his situation but sort of emotionally some of the things that he deals with in terms of you know his parents and feeling kind of alone and adrift in the world were kind of ways in which I felt so probably that would be the one I would say for now in a year it would probably be someone else <laughs> Thanks. Any, I thought I saw another hand Sure I'd like to know how the process of writing short stories differs from the process of writing a novel Yeah, um, I think that the shorts for me um, I won't say that short stories take less time even though you know, we would think that, oh well they're shorter you know, if you have 8 or 10 it shouldn't take that long but um, I do find that they do end up taking quite a bit of time because you're trying to get the characters just right And you're trying to get the situation just right and you're weighing every word and and even though right now I can think of words that I could have, you know, deleted or had my pen and you know try to move that little scene doesn't work. At the time you're really um, trying to make it as concise as possible. And that takes a lot of effort. Whereas writing a novel, I mean obviously you don't want to have wasted words, but you have ways in which you can go into uh Certain scenes and certain sort of plot lines that, you know, are there because they're, they're there for texture. And to me, that's really great, but it also leads to a, a sort of danger. I think, you know, people think, oh, you're a short story writer. You can write a really concise novel. But the novel that I ended up writing before I pared it down was... You know, it's called a thousands and it you know, the joke of my friends is that it was almost a thousand pages and um you know and I ended up pairing it to seven hundred and then eventually to sort of six fifty and six hundred. But um it's really difficult sometimes with a novel because you live with it every day, you have to have the stamina. If you're not sort of working, you know, um pretty much every day or every other day, you're just not adding up the pages. And so it really is a kind of game. It's not a game, but a, a sort of end game of you know stamina and will and just page count. Yeah. Yes. Who are
1: some of your
0: biggest influences? Um, well, I would like to say that some you know some of my favorite writers were my favorite some of my influences, but it's hard to say. I mean, it's a little. Um, Difficult to say who really has influenced you. I mean, the writers that I like um, are, you know, very widely from, you know, James Baldwin, reading him early on, had an, an, I don't know if it was an effect on my work, but I I could kind of see what he was doing with not only sort of language, but, you know, his sort of place in American society and um, with blackness and gayness and all these other things. And I think that um, people like Toni Morrison, you know, just reading her work, it's just such a sort of wonder and a sort of marvel that... um, when I was first introduced to her, I kind of devoured all that she had written up to that point. um, But then, you know, I don't want to just sort of say it's these people or that. I mean, I ended up really falling in love with a lot of um, uh, Russian uh, novelists, and um, I sometimes try to sort out why, and I kind of think because they're so sort of adept at talking about you know, the psychological issues and the soul and kind of the state all in sort of one fell swoop and you know, philosophical issues, and, and I would never dare say that I write like them or Morrison or um, Baldwin, but those are some of the people that I end up really just sort of gravitating towards. And and short story writers who probably aren't as well-known like Stuart Dybeck and Laurie Moore and uh, James Allen McPherson and these people who are just really sort of exemplars but don't get that much recognition. Well, if there are no more questions, I would like to thank you all for being here and for having me. Thanks once again.